Today we're going to hear those words. Now Jesus does this because he loves you and me. He loves us so much that he wants us to know what hell is like and he wants to save us and keep us from that place. And so this morning I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. And as we open up to this parable, let me give you a little preview as to where we are going. Jesus is going to tell us about two people. Then he's going to talk about two destinies. And finally, he is going to tell us two reasons why these two people went to those two destinies. So let's begin, shall we, with the two people. It is very clear from Jesus' parable that one is a non-believer and the other is a believer. But follow along as I begin in verse 19. And notice what our Lord Jesus says. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and they licked his sores. Now this is a parable of two contrasts. It is Lazarus, who it will become clear is a believer, and the rich man who is a non-believer. Now let's start with the rich man, all right? Uh, This chapter is really addressed to the Pharisees. Uh, Back in verse 14, we are told the Pharisees were lovers of money, and they derided what Jesus had to say. And so Jesus told this parable to hit the Pharisees square in their eyes. This rich man, he was a Pharisee in the parable. He was rich and he was also an unbeliever. Let's notice what Jesus had to say about him. First of all, he was obviously very self-centered. The problem is not that he was rich. Uh, Abraham appears later in this parable, and Abraham was a very rich man. It was what this man did with his riches that was the issue. They were all consumed upon himself. Nothing is said at all here about his concern for the great commandment, to love God with all of his heart and to love his neighbor as himself. Instead, he lived a life of selfishness, indulgence, and ostentation. Someone has described him as the original conspicuous consumer. How up-to-date is that? Notice he lived in a gated community. How modern is that? His mansion was all for himself. He wore uh, purple robes and and linen undergarments, uh, the garments of the wealthy. When verse 19 says he clothed himself, the word there is in the middle voice. It does mean he clothed himself. His opulent threads were all about him. And then his meals were for himself. Jews rarely ate meat in the first century. It was too expensive for the common person. You may recall from the parable of the prodigal son when the father killed the fatted calf and through this great banquet, it was a rare treat. 
But this tells us this rich man feasted sumptuously every day. The word feasted there has the idea of he enjoyed himself by celebrating. He feasted like this every day. It was all about him. Notice he was also callously indifferent. Every day this poor beggar laid outside of his gate. The rich man knew him because later on, He uses his very name, Lazarus. Now, he was a fellow Jew, and he was in this condition through no choice of his own. Do you know what this rich man knew? He knew Leviticus 19.18 that says we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. How could he see this man every day and do nothing about him? How? Well, selfishness and living for the good life twists our souls. Make no mistake about that. And he rationalized in his self-centeredness that this man was somebody else's problem. I read about two men who were walking together in a large city. And as they were walking, they looked into an alley, and there was a bum passed out in the alley. And the one friend said to the other, why doesn't God do something about that? His friend said, God has. He created you. And that's what this rich man forgot. He forgot that God had created him for more than just himself. So it goes without saying that he was self-sufficient. He had no needs. There was nothing that he could not take care of. He had plenty of friends to enjoy good times with. Do you know many years later, Jesus' half-brother James described people in his day who were just like this? He said about them, You have lived on the earth in self-indulgence and luxury. You have fattened yourself as in a day of feasting. Doesn't this picture here this morning show the essence of our fallen condition as sinners, does it not? What we see here is what we are like as fallen creatures in Adam, that we are born self-centered, indifferent to the needs of others, and we make our own way in life. In fact, listen to these words of the Apostle Paul later in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, and notice how he describes us naturally. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Let me ask you this morning, is not self-love the essence of hating others? Of course it is. Now let's continue on. Because Jesus also describes the other man, Lazarus. In our modern world, we are not used to seeing beggars like this man. In other places, as our friends go to Africa, they will see it. But in the first century, beggars like Lazarus were very common. Let me put up a picture this morning so that we can see the pitiable sight of what this man looked like every day as he lay at the gate. 
Now notice how Jesus describes him. He was a helpless beggar. It is clear that he was a cripple because they laid him at the gate. What this means is he was the worst kind of beggar that there could be. He was not only destitute, but he was totally dependent upon others for his survival. He was also an outcast. Uh, The word laid that's used here in verse 20 is actually rather soft. Uh, The root word of the word lay means to throw. It carries the idea of carelessly dropped. He had no family or friends to care for him. The imagery of the dogs licking his sores indicates he was all alone. And then he was diseased. The sores here? They're running sores. They're abscesses. They are what we know as ulcers that will fail to heal unless they receive medical attention. What this means is running ulcers like this rendered this Jew unclean, further making him an outcast. Now let me just stop here for a moment. Why does Jesus paint this picture? It's because in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus began his ministry, as he called people to salvation and to himself, he began with the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The word that Jesus uses for poor in spirit is the very word used to describe Lazarus as a beggar. It is the very same word. What Jesus is now telling us is this is how God from heaven sees every single sinner. This is a spiritual picture of fallen humanity. Did you notice in this parable there are only two people? Only two. This fits the pattern of what Jesus has done in previous parables. What Jesus is doing is seeking to show us ourselves. Remember the parable of the two debtors? We are either Simon the self-righteous Pharisee or we are the sinful woman. In the parable of the prodigal son, we are either the self-righteous older brother or we see ourselves as the prodigal son. And God sees all of humanity in only two ways. We are either the rich man who says, I do not need to believe, or we are Lazarus who knows how desperately we need Jesus. How we see ourselves determines whether we will come to Jesus or not. Let's move to the second part of the parable. Secondly, there are two destinies. Hell versus heaven. Look with me, if you would, at verse 22, and notice what it says. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died 
and was buried. Say, death is the great equalizer, isn't it? Friday night, I went over to the park cemetery and, and walked around. There are a number of graves over there of people that I have buried as a pastor. In the park cemetery, there are big monuments. There are some well-known, wealthy people that are buried there. But you know what? They're also obscure, forgotten nobodies, but they all have one thing in common. They all die. They all die. The difference is what happens after death. Jesus said in the parable, Lazarus the believer went to heaven. The Bible tells us that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Therefore, to go near his side means to be welcomed into heaven and into intimate fellowship with God and the saints who have gone before. But we are told the rich man went to Hades, commonly referred to in the Bible as hell, the place of punishment. Now do you know this rich man, or this, uh, this reversal here, would have shocked everyone? You see, the Pharisees believed that wealth was a sign of God's favor. But they also believed that poverty, disease, uncleanness, that was a sign of God's disfavor, yea, his curse. And so as they listened to this parable, they would have said, Jesus, you put the wrong man in heaven, you put the wrong man in hell. Jesus, you are wrong. God knows people's hearts, doesn't he? God knows the fruit that comes out of our hearts. And he knows who the humble believer is. The rich man went to hell, and what a shock he would have said. I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I'm rich. I'm religious. He was also a non-believer. Now what Jesus says here is one of the clearest revelations in all the Bible about hell. And this morning, if we really want to understand this, we need to understand what Jesus says. First of all, hell is real. Hell is real. Look at verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Hell is not a state of mind. It is not uh, here on earth, if I've heard some people say actually to me. But in the very same verse as Jesus said, there is a place called heaven. It is symbolized by being at Abraham's side in the very same place. He said there is a verse called Hades or hell. So if heaven is a place to Jesus, he is telling us hell is also a place. It is real. Secondly, hell is terrible. Look at verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
Now, the big question here for us is, are these flames literal? Or is Jesus using a figure of speech to describe something horrible? The best hint that I can give to you for the answer of that question, are the flames of hell literal or are they figurative, is what Jesus said about hell in Matthew 25, verse 41. He said, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for you and me. Jesus said it was originally created for the devil and his angels. Now listen carefully. The devil and demons are spirits. They have no bodies. Physical fire is not able to affect immaterial spirits. That would indicate to me then that the flames of hell are a figurative expression to tell us that whatever hell is, it is a terrible place. The best answer that I've ever seen to the question, are these flames literal or are they figurative, came from William Evans. William Evans was the first graduate of Moody Bible Institute many, many years ago. He wrote a wonderful book entitled The Great Doctrines of the Bible. Would you look at how he answered this question? Is the fire spoken of literal fire? It is an accepted law of language that a figure of speech is less intense than the reality. If fire is merely a figurative expression, it must stand for some great reality, and if the reality is more intense than the figure, what an awful thing the punishment symbolized by fire must be. And that's where we have to leave it. Whatever it is, it is a terrible place. My dad as a teenager listening to that sermon on hell said to me as I listened to that sermon, I said to myself, I don't want to go there. And he was right. He was right. Thirdly, hell is deserved. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Notice that during his lifetime, Abraham said to the rich man, You've received your good things. Did you notice? They were his good things. Self-centeredness, callous indifference toward others, self-sufficiency. They were all his good things. He had shut God out of his life, and the very word of God that he claimed that he had obeyed, that he believed, he rejected. Did you notice there is not the slightest hesitation in Abraham's mind to say the rich man deserves exactly what he was getting? It was not his riches that condemned him. It was his lack of faith and a transformed life. The second president of Moody Bible Institute was R.A. Torrey. He was a personal friend of evangelist Dwight Moody. This is what R.A. Torrey said. Of course there is a hell. If there is not, there ought to be. 
And you and I need a hiding place from it, every one of us, for every one of us has sinned and come short of the glory of God. Finally, hell is eternal. Look at verse 26. Abraham says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Once a person dies, there's no second chance. God has fixed boundaries between heaven and hell. There is no bridge over the chasm. The saved and the lost in the future life do not mix. There is no hope of salvation for those who die and go to hell. You will notice, the rich man said back in verse 23, I'm in torment. Twice in verse 24 and 25, the word anguish is used. In verse 24, he says, I'm in anguish. And then in verse 25, Abraham says, you are in anguish. A very interesting word. It is a word that means mental pain or grief. The torment here is defined as an anguish of soul and mind and heart. Billy Graham has said this, the greatest tragedy of hell is being separated from the presence of God forever. That's the great tragedy of hell, to know that you will be shut out forever from the comfort that believers like Lazarus are experiencing, and you will never have the opportunity for unending intimacy with God in the bliss of heaven. That is the anguish, the tragedy of hell. Have you ever asked yourself this question? If someone could speak to us from hell, what would they say? I have loved ones and friends who I fear are in hell at this very moment. You probably do as well. If they could speak to us from that place, what would they say? Do you know in the brilliance of this parable, Jesus has the rich man speak from hell? What a brilliant teacher is Jesus. All of us would wonder, what would somebody in that place say to us And Jesus concludes this parable with two reasons why one went to heaven and one went to hell. They are unbelief versus repentance. And he has the rich man speak to us from hell. Look at verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Two things. Number one, God has done everything necessary in the Bible to keep us from hell. This man wanted a miraculous appearance to his five brothers so that they would be convinced. Perhaps you've heard somebody say, if God would just show himself to me, then I would believe. Did you notice what Abraham said? The Bible is sufficient to teach us about heaven and hell. From one end of the Bible to the other, beginning with the flood in Genesis, all the way to the lake of fire in the last chapter of Revelation, God has warned us that there is a judgment to shun and a heaven to be gained. And there are many, many proofs this book is true. If we are willing to believe, we can believe. The second thing we hear from the portals of hell is the Bible gives us the plan by which we can be saved from hell. It's right here in these words. For those of you that have participated in everyday evangelism, you know that saving faith involves three elements. It involves knowledge. You have to have knowledge of the message. It involves assent to that message. You have to believe that it is true. And then you have to trust the Savior and what He did. All three of these elements are here in this dialogue from hell. Let's look at them. Uh, notice what uh, Abraham says in verse 29. He says we have to hear Moses and the prophets. There's knowledge. We have to hear what God's Word says. Then in verse 31... Abraham says, we have to be convinced that it is true. We have to give assent that the message is the message that God wants us to have. And then notice, from the rich man's lips, uh, his very self, in verse 30, he says, we have to repent. Conversion is like a coin. Just as a coin has heads and tails, so conversion has two sides. It has repentance, turning from our own way, and trust turning to Jesus and what he has done. And right here, from the very portals of hell, through the lips of Jesus, is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear the message that is designed to save you. Be convinced that it is true. Turn from your own way and turn to Jesus who's died for you, rose for you and longs to have you in heaven with himself. This morning, I would like to close this message with the words of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a man who loved souls. He longed for people to know Jesus in the same way that he knew Jesus. He believed God's word thoroughly and he preached God's word passionately.
He preached about hell. And he preached about heaven. And he could say things in very arresting ways, ways in which many are unable to communicate. Let me share with you what he said about hell as we close this morning. Here are his words. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. And that is the passion of Jesus. And that's why this parable is here. That he warns us and appeals to us so that no one would go there. Let's bow our hearts together, shall we? Before we close, I want to give you the opportunity to turn to Christ. I said in the early service, two services of this size, we've had two full services today. I'm convinced there are people here who are not sure of their salvation and their eternal destiny. And I've done the very best that I can do to bring the message of Christ in this parable to you. And I do not want you to leave today until you do business with the Savior. Today, you can say something like this from your heart to the Lord. God, I know I'm lost. I I know that in your sight, I'm this helpless, diseased outcast of a beggar. But Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me. You rose again for me. And right now, Lord, I'm repenting turning from my way. And I'm turning to you, Lord Jesus, in trust and faith. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord. Forgive me of my many sins. Give me life everlasting. And make me a child of God. And Lord, this day, because your mercy and grace is so great, I will now follow you all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Father, I pray today for the work of your Spirit. Holy Spirit, only you can 
cause scales to fall from blind eyes. Only you can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. I pray today that you would grant repentance and faith for people to believe. I pray this day that there would be rejoicing in heaven for souls that have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. I pray that this would be a day of rejoicing for people who have found what Lazarus found, grace and mercy and love and welcome into the eternal presence of God. Save souls, Lord, today for Jesus' great and wonderful sake. Amen. I love this last song that we're going to sing. Have you any room for Jesus?